friend on the phone now, Mr. Al Beck. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning. I hope everybody's having a great day. I just dropped a pen in my uh, cup of tea. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever done that, but I, I don't. I don't recommend it at all. It kind of it splashes a bit, so mm-hmm. it's uh, use it as a stir stick and, and pretend like you you plan to do that. <laughs> yeah, I and I don't even. I have no idea how I I did it. It was just in my hand, and then it <laughs> uh, I it jumped. I guess I don't know, but uh, no. Then there were no great injuries and uh, not all that much splashing, so I think uh, I'm going to be okay. But oh, I was reading the Des Moines Register this morning. It's a fine newspaper, and um, they had a big story in there and a headline saying that Iowa leads the nation when it comes to the amount of poop its people and livestock generate. Wh- what? And this is re- yeah, this is <laughs> because research from the U- it's University It's not that of populated. Iowa. I mean, Iowa's not the most populated, so we're talking per capita per year of poop? Wow. Yeah, and then they have, of course, uh, so much livestock. So when you combine the two, and and again, this isn't a University of Minnesota study, but it's the University of Iowa scientists did this. So, wow. and uh, so Iowa is number one and number two, and I think uh, it's something to be pretty proud of down there. All my relatives must no, just be beside themselves. Not number one and number two. They're number. It's number two, number one, and number two. Number one and number two. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I'm sure there's great celebrations, and the bars are probably busy now that everybody is saying, boy, <laughs> this is something to be proud of. So, and, uh, and uh, you know, all my relatives are from Iowa, so I always have to <laughs> yeah, put something in on that because they always seem to be beating us in football or uh, yes. basketball or something like that. And and they tend to rub it in a little bit. You know, Iowans are wonderful people, but uh, if they're related to you, they tend to rub it in just a bit when they when they whip you in something. Uh, the other day, there was a, I was stopping to look at blooming flowers, and I thought they would never blossom, but they did. And I need to maintain the faith of the flowers. Uh, while I was doing that, a multitude of loud motorcycles motored by. It was just this long line, and they just roared past. And once they'd gone past, I heard the snort of a deer, and a doe had been spooked from its hiding place, and she just kind of jumped out in the middle of the lawn where I was, and the deer forcibly expelled air through its nostrils, and it does this when it detects danger. And she saw me and vanished with a truncated snort, and about the same time I watched a flock of Canada geese flying north. Now, I see them on, it's called a molt migration, M-O-L-T, during late May and early June each year. And the geese, either too young to mate or without goslings. So they either lost a nest, lost their goslings, or sometimes uh, another pair will take the goslings. So they're, again, they're either unmated or without goslings. They will fly northward to safe places where they undergo what is called an eclipse molt. Hmm. And that includes a loss of flight feathers, which grounds the birds for four or five weeks. So we will see, uh, some people will call it a reverse migration. I saw a garter snake on the lawn about the same time with the deer and the motorcycles and the Canada geese. It was a busy uh, time on the lawn. And I remember TJ, Tom Jess and our friend in Medelia, this had been in early April 
where he uh, told me that he'd broken his old record in that he saw 142 garter snakes along the Watanwan River near Medelia. His old record was 105 snakes, and that was two years ago. And so he was uh, he was hoping to break that record. I don't know that he did. So it's probably still 142 garter snakes in one day. Wow. Uh, Pamela Freeman says, I find it interesting that many who like jelly sport at least a little red or orange, except for the kitty birds, all sleek and gray. Uh, yeah, and even they, Pamela, have a little... Uh, color on their rump sort of a rufous color so they could uh, they could fall in that category too pamela added so the lineup at the jelly feeder that was earlier this spring where orioles chatter scolded one another and the males now and then conducted short sorties against one another when line budding occurred seems to have abated now to summer slower pace now i have seen only one lone oriole male and a few catbirds at the jelly all quite leisurely and with no waiting or flaring or avian tempers. My seed feeders, Finch and Mixed, are not needing filling so often. Who I do see more of are brown-headed cowbirds. They are avian ladies who lunch, those who leave the care of their offspring to others whilst they go off to nibble and commune with others of their status. They can still feed on the seeds, not needing to worry about gathering insects for a hungry, mouth-gaping brood back at the nest. Not them. It pains me to see just how numerous they are. I did have one new sighting over the weekend. A brown thrasher skittled by when I surprised him in his leaf turning. Uh, Rick Mammel said, Al, you mentioned uh, chicken hawk as a reference to a cooper's hawk from your youth. I had always thought the red-tailed hawk was what used to commonly have the moniker chicken hawk. I suppose I'm wrong since I've grown rather used to being wrong as I've become <laughs> now quite old. Uh, well, you don't have to be old to be wrong all the time, and you're not wrong, Rick. I, I often tell folks when I was a kid, pretty much any hawk could be called a chicken hawk. That was just uh, people gave it kind of that one name. And the red-tailed hawk was then as it is now, was our most common hawk and is our most common hawk. So it was the chicken hawk. But the real chicken hawk, for me anyway, was the Cooper's hawk because he was the one that was getting chickens. Uh, Cindy Drill of North Mankato saw a Swainson's thrush and scarlet tanager. Stephanie Altfelish of Albert Lee saw an indigo bunting. Uh, Molly Miller said, gosh, Al, I'm sitting under an oak tree reading and I hear a red-eyed vireo right above me. I look at it through my binoculars and it breaks to pick at a couple leaves. Before sitting down, I'd been following it around trying to see if and where it was nesting. Then it came to me, cool, go back to reading. This extremely loud calling comes from a small group of trees a short distance away. What on earth? Then it's above me, but it's now singing repeatedly, not screaming. But it's not the red eye. Right above me is a yellow-throated vireo. Good views of the white belly, yellow throat, and wing bars, but not of the back. Turned to my phone to check song of the yellow-throated vireo. It and my phone started singing in harmony. Then the bird flew off. So I played a different call of the yellow-throated, and it was the screaming thing that had come from a small group of trees. Aha. And then the bird came back to my oak tree and started screaming. Yikes, I shut off my phone, but the calling continued. Then it turned to singing. 
I had to double check that my phone really was off because the singing was so loud. Excellent views this time. Uh, Penny Ladley of Hollandale said so many Baltimore Orioles this year. Jerry and Shelley Victoria of Allendale, red-headed woodpecker, pileated woodpecker, and scarlet tanager in their yard. Um, I, thanks to Joel Xavier. Joel is a uh, retired pastor, uh, lives in rural Allendale, and North Freeborn Lutheran Church closed some years back. And Joel has turned it in a house, into a house, and now lives in North Freeborn Lutheran Church. And it's just the coolest place. And uh, Gail and I were invited out there and uh, just had a nice time. Uh, John Hockema spotted a laughing gull at the Wells Water Treatment Plant. The gull is favoring the ponds on the north side of County Road 109, feeding on algae mats. It appears to be missing a foot, which is apparent when it swoops to feed. Uh, Steve, uh, no last name, Steve said this spring during my casual and passive avian observations from the deck overlooking the edge of a large oak hickory woodland, I've noticed what seems to be an unusually large number of monarch butterflies. I know this is anecdotal, but wondering if others on the birding outings have noticed this also. Boy, I have, Steve, and I'm sure others have. Uh, Dave Bartke saw a surf scoter in Faribault County. Chad Hines, a Henslow Sparrow in Blue Earth County. Kimberly Johnson, a Eurasian Collar Dove in Faribault County. Sean Conrad, an oven bird in Dodge County. Brad Abendroth a Henslow Sparrow in Freeborn County, Bob Jansen, a Henslow Sparrow in Dodge County, Sharon Holzer, a Eurasian Collar Dove in Watwin County, Andrew Nyhaus saw a Canvasback, Lesser Scott, Bufflehead, Black Crown Night Heron, and a Henslow Sparrow in Faribault County, and a Blue Grosbeak in Blue Earth County. And uh, I, I want to mention one more time, uh, I do a, the Pelican Breeze 2, and it's a, a big pontoon boat that we put out on Albert Lee Lake, and we give everybody binoculars, and we look at what we can see, and we, we tell a story or two, and uh, tell the history of the lake, and uh, the, the wildlife that is seen there, and it's... Uh, on, it, again, it cruises on Alberty Lake on the prepossessing Pelican Breeze 2. It'll board at Frank Hall Park Boat Landing in Alberty. And the cruises are at 1.30 on Sundays. And there's June 23rd, July 28th, August 25th, and September 29th. And if you'd like more information, we'd love to have you come on board. It's not a three-hour tour like the Minnow, but we <laughs> you get will you will return. Out there for, yeah, it's probably two hours by the time you get on and by the time you get back. But if you're interested, call 383-7273, and that's a 507 number, uh, 383-7273. And, Karen, you were kind enough to send me a thing from, uh, what is it from, Giz- is it Gizmodo? Is that uh, about uh, bee house is probably killing the bees? Well, you know, I found it, found it on Facebook from Valley Veggies, which is a local uh, farm here in Mankato that posted it on their site. So, and I thought, hmm, 
this is interesting because it talks about how you know how we like to help the bees help the pollinators by planting flowers and thinking that we're helping the bees by putting up these cute little bee houses and some of them are just adorable but then this article came up and said you might be killing them with these cheap bee houses so I, I wanted to just talk with you have you talk about that and what what does that mean and how can we help them sure and um i know i've mentioned before that uh, sometimes when I congregate things and uh, some people will criticize bird feeding uh, because it does the same thing. It congregates species and can uh, lead to uh, lead to problems but I think for the most part bird feeding uh, creates so many wonderful things and there's so many benefits that, that they override uh, the, the bad things. You, you know there's uh, there's a silver lining to every cloud, and a, a pessimist would argue that there's a cloud to every <laughs> silver lining. Bee houses are cool, and these are for native bees that are solitary bees. So it's uh, I see them in a lot of gardens, mm -hmm. and again, they're saying you're congregating these things, so there could be problems with predation. I think some of the bee houses, maybe the straws that are used in them are not uh, made from proper breathable materials. Uh, all paper what? straws that are easily removable are natural woods that aren't bamboo. You know, I uh, think leaf. I've I read somewhere make your own and use even plastic straws, so that sounds like that's a no-no then. Yeah, I would not use, uh, I'd use uh, paper straws, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of them do. Uh, and I know, was it at Miniopa here a little while ago? They took uh, cuttings of cedar, little um, chunks of cedar wood, and uh, they drilled three holes in them. I think the kids there, Scott, had them drilling holes, and they drilled holes of three different sizes. And that was their bee house. And then they were done, and they could take them out and hang them up. And I think things like that, I still think they're good. And maybe maybe we overdo it sometimes in the number of holes we put in there, but I, I, I still think that... Uh, you know, it's going to be a long time. Maybe a lot of testing on these. We'll find out if Bee House actually provides benefits, uh, depending if they're properly cared for and uh, and uh, where they're located and all these kind of things. I believe mold and mite were the mm -hmm. two concerns uh, of right. most people. Yeah. Well, how do we know and if we're, we're getting a good one or we're doing the right thing? Because I think people really generally want to do the right thing. To oh, help. man, do they ever. Everybody gets one, and I get a lot of photos of them, people. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I know one at the Nursing Care Center that I stop and visit regularly is really used a lot. There's just uh, all kinds of little bees going into those holes, leaf-cutting bees and that sort of thing. So it's really neat to see them. And I think a number of the residents of the care center will go out and look at them and get a kick out of seeing that. I guess, again, the thing would be these breathable materials mm -hmm. like uh, uh, paper straws and natural woods and probably not bamboo. And I know a lot of oh. them you get to have bamboo in there. Because it's and not breathable? That would, Is that why? Or Yep. Okay. Yep, I think that's the main thing is is something like that. 
And uh, again, I think they're just really cool. But I think butterfly houses are cool too, and and they're not really used by butterflies, um, but uh, they're still neat and they look great in a yard. And they're a, a nice place for wasps and spiders to have their nests. So how, it's, uh, how about the bat houses? Because I see more and more um, promotion for the bat houses because they can help eat mosquitoes and other insects and things and and how do you get the bats to come to your house to go in your uh, bat house versus your <clears throat> attic yeah and that's the the real problem with that so many of the bat houses end up with no tenants <laughs> it seems that some of the bigger bat houses do well and i see a lot of them at state parks and nature centers really big ones mm-hmm. and i talk to those good folks there and some have all kinds of bats and some have pretty much no bats at all how, how big is and, big for a bat house i mean i'm trying to picture i mean we talk and huge i mean when you say big what yeah, is yeah i think they're huge we see this i remember one year we had uh oh, through community ed we built bat houses mm-hmm. had kids come in and uh, we you always end up with an overabundance and then there's some kids that walk in at the last minute and and i i never have the heart to send them away because i'm just so happy they want to be there and we built all these things and we had uh, boy scouts helping us which was a otherwise we'd never be able to do it uh, many kids with hammers and things and you know bad things could happen <laughs> so it uh and we put those up. People put them up all over. I see them along the bike trail in Albert Lee. And uh, so many were just put on trees. I I don't know that that works really well. Uh, They work best if you put them like on the side of a building, a shed up high under the eave. Or in the parks and things, they're put up on uh, gigantic posts. And you have better luck with those. But so many of the small ones I don't know. If somebody's had good luck with the small ones, I'd love to hear from you. So is it bigger than two feet, three feet, five feet wide? I mean, I'm picturing... Oh, no, no, it's not five feet. I don't know what those big ones are. They're a couple feet, I suppose. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. But that's that's still, it's a big house, you know, and... And um, they like them dark, and there's a bunch of secrets to doing that. And, again, like I say, I stop at these parks because I always ask. I said, how about the bat house there? And I either get this huge smile and say, it's just incredible. All of them, we get in there, you get kind of that frowny face. It's just, yeah, Yeah. it just... They don't There's work. Nothing, you know. Once in a while, we get a crow roost <laughs> on it, just lands on there and spends a half hour or so, and then flies away. So my hope is that they will all find bats and uh, be useful, and because uh, they're all put up. And like I say, we built all those small bat houses, and oh, we thought that we were all going to get bats in them. And yeah. I kind of checked with the people at put them up for a couple of years and didn't have much luck. But again, a lot of them took them out and we told them to put them on buildings and things. But you know how people are. We just we say, oh, that tree, it'll it'll look good there. And then we can watch it. We right. can watch all the bats coming and going. Well, then you nail it to a tree and you get pretty much nothing then. And so it's, but um, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, from folks with the bee houses, too. Yeah. And uh, I know a lot of people have them because they, they just look really cool in the garden. And we all love bees. Uh, well, maybe some people that are allergic to a sting or something. But these little guys aren't much for stinging anybody. And I 
I sat, I got a chair, one of those um, kind of lawn chair-like things, and I sat down in the Nuritsen Care Center, and I just watched the bees one day last year. And it was fun watching them all come in there, bringing in bits of chewed-up vegetation and plugging the hole at the end of each of their, their nest sites there. So it was fun. If you're driving around now and you see, uh, boy, there's still temporary wetlands just everywhere. You see them out mm-hmm. in farm fields, and you might see a lot of ducks out there. And if you stop and, and geese, uh, yeah, but yeah, a lot of Canada geese. But if you put binoculars on there, or maybe got a camera with a scope, and you say, "Wow, they're all mallard drakes," and it's they are all mallard drakes for the most part. Once in a while you'll find a hen that has had probably a failed nest or something. But for the most part, hens are incubating eggs and taking care of ducklings, that sort of thing. And the males offer no assistance whatsoever to their mates. And they're, uh, they're, and they're deadbeat dads for the most <laughs> part. So they, while the hen's taking care of everything, the drakes are out in the field just enjoying themselves and eating. And I don't know, talking about the success of the Minnesota Twins, who knows what they're up to out there. I walked the mail down this morning, and I surprised a rabbit. And uh, they have those big ears. They can usually hear you coming, but his mind must have been somewhere else. He just shot up in the air and took off and they can run at speeds around 20 miles an hour. And I was thinking each year about 80% of Minnesota's cottontail population dies from weather, predators, or disease. But we don't have to worry because that remaining 20% is perfectly capable of repopulating the entire state. There's no problem there whatsoever. And I I was hoping they were leaving my milkweeds alone, but as I walked by them today, I see they've been feeding on the young leaves of the milkweeds growing in my yard. And that's these are ones that my wife has planted, and it's just uh, the behavior is very un-Easter Bunny-like, uh, but they love eating those young leaves of the milkweed. And I wouldn't think that uh, would be tasty in any way, but they sure are woofing them down. Uh, you mentioned uh, off the air that you're seeing a lot of raccoons uh, on, the, on road. the road. Even in town, I'm seeing them out. You know, out in the country, when I drive out to the lake house, I see them. I've seen them on the streets when I drive home. You know, so I'm thinking, why are all these raccoons out? What's the deal? Are there babies coming, or or why? I think they're just probably moving around as part of their foraging, part of their hunting. And they just, uh, it's the time of year where they're moving around. And I have uh, at least, I'm sure, if I see two of them, who knows how many there are in my yard. And they don't get along very well. They, They fight and growl, and they can make growling sounds like there's a bear out there. But their their mating season here in Minnesota is probably February to March. So that's when the male raccoon is really traveling long distance, and he tries to mate with as many females as he can. 
Then the uh, females, it's a 63-day gestation period of, oh, I don't know, two to six young, maybe something like that. And then once they're four to six months old, they live on their own. So if it's March, we're looking at two months after that. So it's they, the young would not be out running around too much yet, I wouldn't think. And, but they're just out moving around and finding stuff where they, you know, they are trash divers extraordinaire. So if there's trash of some kind, they will find a way in it. And I know anybody that's ever raised sweet corn, as I have for many years, I don't know that anything loves sweet corn more than a <laughs> raccoon. They just take down the stalks, and they just, uh, I put a radio out there one night, and because somebody told me, well, play a radio out there. They I heard that, that too, yeah. <laughs> It, it doesn't work. They they dance while they eat your sweet corn, and they just knock <laughs> everything down and make a mess. And they are cute, uh, especially the little ones. They're just so cute. Sometimes during the, they're most active at night, but I do see them during the day. And sometimes during the day, you can spot one that'll be sunbathing on a branch of a tree. It's <laughs> up there just enjoying themselves. So they are. I would hazard to guess we probably have more raccoons than we've ever had, and that's because we provide a lot of food for them, and they just, uh, we get more and more. And uh, somebody asked me, what do they weigh? Oh, 15 to 25 pounds, I would guess. They, they get, that's a sizable animal. I wouldn't want to meet one in the dark alley and try to Do they bite? I mean, if you were trying to pet one, let's say, or, I mean, are they vicious? Oh, you bet. Oh, yeah, they are? They oh, sure okay. I would say this, though, in most cases, they would run. They'd okh- run away. Unless but they're rabies. cornered. Mom always said if one approaches you, it probably has rabies, so stay away. Yeah, and if you get them cornered, then they're going to fight. And they're, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm where we always had dogs, and we had a big marsh, and they would, on occasion, they would corner a raccoon, and it would be just a horrendous battle. Uh, so they're... Uh, they're a, a great foe. I just like I said, I wouldn't want to mess with one of them. And they they look so cute. I remember climbing up in a corn crib one day because there was a young raccoon up there, and I thought, what a great pet he would be. And I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, like you would a a, a, a baby kitten or something. I took him down, and I didn't see any parents around, so. I, brought him down, put him, built a cage, put him in there, and I'm going to make a pet out of him. And uh, he was the world's worst pet. You know, he didn't want to be a pet. And uh, he would reach out, and we had chickens, and when they get too close, he'd reach out and grab them and pull them in there Uh-oh. and take the head off them. So he Did would, they eat them then or so, just uh, take the head? Oh, yeah. He, oh, yeah, he, he ate whatever he could get. He ate. Even though we fed him, he still wanted the. Those chickens were just too, uh, I don't know what he said to them that made them come <laughs> over there and look at him. And I thought, boy, you know, after that happened to one, you'd think the other chickens would say, yeah, I saw what happened to Agnes. I don't think I'm going to go near that cage over there. But I finally let him go. And uh, it was uh, it was just uh, all wild things aren't meant to be pets. But when you're a boy, uh, you just figure everything should be your pet. Oh. I 
I wanted to add something. What what was the sure. statistic you started at the beginning of the show? You said Iowa is number one and number two. What was that again? Tell me that because somebody just weighed in about that, and I wanted to share this. Oh, I in the, according to the Des Moines Register, Iowa leads the nation when it comes to the amount of poop its people and livestock generate. This is from the Des Moines Register. They they used the word poop in there. Okay, and this is. Research from a University of Iowa scientist shows that Iowa's number one and number two. Well, Rich from Mankato shares this on the text. He says, hi, Karen. Iowa has all the presidential candidates down there, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's have... a correlation or what. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that, Rich, but that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> good one, yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you all come to the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. A special is always a Heimlich Maneuver and gravies considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. You know, I I try to be more thankful today than I was yesterday, and, and I don't find that a great challenge. I'm just thankful for so many things. And a young woman named Caitlin was in a class I taught, a writing class at the College of St. Benedict, and she told me that she had a goldfish named Sushi. I'm guessing this was a nervous fish. Uh, I work at fairs, and fairgoers can win fish in plastic bags by finding success in a carnival game. So you see young people walking around with a, a bag with a little water in it and a goldfish. And as might be expected, not all of those fish make it home, and those that do are mostly short-lived. I reminded myself that I wasn't a carnival's prize fish. I'm thankful for that. I need to do that occasionally to keep my spirits properly buoyed. On my way home to my domicile after spending a grand day with these remarkable students, I heard on the radio that 151,600 people die each day. 7,452 in the United States. There were no numbers given for goldfish, but life is good. Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. And do something wild today, folks. Get out there and look at a bird. Hey, Al, thank you so much. We'll chat with you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, our good friend Al Bat. It is 1032.